Okay, uh, if everyone wants to grab their Bibles, whether it's in their phone or in their pews, uh, I'm using one of the pew Bibles. And if you're using one of those, you can go to page 878, which I think is up there, for a reading from John. Let's give you a sec to find it. All right, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and become my disciples. As the Father has so loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. The second reading comes from Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 9. It's found on page 955 of the Pew Bibles, beginning at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honourable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Well, good evening. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Richard. I'm an assistant minister here, and it's uh, my privilege and pleasure to open up God's Word for us this evening. Uh, as Andrew mentioned earlier on, we're uh, continuing in this series in the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, tonight, thinking about uh, joy, uh, the second of those fruit that uh, Paul lists in Galatians 5. And we're going to uh, see what Jesus has to say about joy and what he has to teach us about joy, particularly in that passage that we read from uh, John chapter 15. Uh, but as we begin to think about joy this evening, we're going to start by thinking actually about happiness. Uh, happiness is kind of a big deal in our culture, in our society. We talk often about happiness as uh, the thing that we kind of use to measure whether or not our life is going well. Uh, we're told that we deserve to be happy, that the purpose of our life is to make ourselves happy. Uh, the advice that you get given often about your career or what you should do once you finish school or what you should do once you finish university, how you should make changes in your life is do what makes you happy. Uh, happiness is even used these days by uh, economists. You guys are all way too cool to have sat around reading books about the uh, economics of happiness, but that's the kind of thing I like to do in my spare time. And even economists these days go, you know what, happiness is a good, is a good thing that we can measure somehow using uh, economic tools. Uh, happiness is a big deal in our society, in our culture. 
Uh, that movie that we uh, looked at uh, just before we saw a, a clip from, uh, uh, from Inside Out, where is it gone? Ah, there you go, Joy. What a beautiful thing. Uh, it's such a great movie. Uh, I don't know how many of you have seen it. It's just this beautiful kind of, um, you know, classic Pixar tearjerker film uh, where you get all emotional about how wonderful kids are and how beautiful life is and all that kind of stuff. And we saw that moment from right at the start of the film, actually, where uh, Riley is born uh, and Joy is kind of there, you know, pressing the button to give the little giggles and stuff, the things that you, you know, get with Joy. Uh, and you see a memory kind of roll in, uh, in you know, spherical form, uh, which powers Riley. You see it kind of turn the gears and, and the joy that she feels and experiences is what pushes her forward in life. Uh, and yet you see uh, that actually what joy is really about uh, is the feeling of happiness. Uh, when sadness kind of like sidles in and starts pressing the button as well, and joy kind of goes, can I just, let me, let me just get in, I just want to, I, I need to fix that. Isn't that interesting? As I need to fix that, that feeling of sadness. Later on in the film, at one of the critical moments, actually, uh, Joy yells at uh, sadness that she needs to go and save Riley without sadness's help because, and I quote, Riley needs to be happy. There's this kind of view uh, in the film that the joy means feeling happy. And that's what our, our culture often looks to do, to, to push sadness down, actually, to, to try and feel happy all the time, to make your life the kind of life where you don't have to feel sadness of any kind. And, of course, the, the film is better than that, and the lesson of the film is that sadness is a helpful thing, you need to process it well and all that kind of stuff. But in our culture at large, uh, often we're seeking to minimise sadness and maximise happiness. And the way that we do that, generally, is by trying to change our circumstances. Uh, you know that this is true if you've ever asked yourself the question, uh, if I could just do X, I'd be happy. If I could just have Y, I'd be happy. Uh, I wonder what that is for you. I wonder how you'd fill in the blank there. Uh, perhaps uh, if you could just have a better job or a better boss or better colleagues, perhaps. Uh, perhaps if you had better friends or if you had a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Perhaps if your health was better, if you were in shape. Uh, perhaps if you had a different uni course, if you had a different hobby. Perhaps if you could own a house. If I could just have that thing, then I'd be happy. I wonder what it is for you. And that's what our culture says to us in all kinds of ways, that happiness really is just around the corner and the way to get to it is to change your circumstances. That's the lesson that the consumer culture we live in seeks to instill in us. That's what advertising does to us all the time. You want to be happy? Here's the product that will solve that for you. Happiness is just around the corner. Of course, life isn't like that, is it? Life is rarely like that. Uh, our circumstances, in the end, are largely beyond our control. And far more often than us changing our own circumstances for the better, circumstances change kind of to us, <laughs> We don't have anything to do with it, and our circumstances change unexpectedly, quickly, sometimes in quite devastating ways. And so our quest for happiness often results in us desperately grasping for things that we think will bring us some kind of happiness. Desperately grasping after things that we think will change our circumstances in such a way that we'll just feel happier. And of course, when we get those things, so often they fail to deliver, or actually we just kind of crush them in the process. We get so obsessed with that one thing that will bring me happiness that when we get it, we squeeze it so tightly and hold on so tight that it has nothing left to give to us in the end at all. And when the things we grasp after fail to bring us the happiness we seek, we often end up pretty jaded. You kind of ask the question, you know, is happiness even a thing? Is that something that's actually attainable at all? 
Uh, often, of course, it's uh, suffering of various kinds that brings us to this point, some kind of failure that we experience, an illness, uh, a death of someone close to us, or even just the long-term suffering of life just not really turning out the way that we would like it to. And so to be told, as we so often are in our culture, that we can have and should expect happiness and that that's our goal in life, that it should be how we define the success or failure of how we live, that can be just a really cruel joke in the end. Uh, When you learn that life doesn't work that way, the search for happiness can become a crushing burden. Uh, This is a problem that's common to all of us. Uh, It's a pretty standard human experience. Uh, And though it's possible that a particular culture we inhabit exacerbates it in various ways, uh, nonetheless, this problem of happiness is one for human beings throughout the ages, throughout time, across the world. And you see, what we need is something that goes deeper than our circumstances. We need something that we can hang on to not only when our circumstances bring happiness into our lives, as good as that is, but also something to hang on to when our circumstances bring us down. And so the question we're going to ask tonight is, uh, what does Jesus have to offer us in this? What relief can Jesus bring to us in a world where happiness can be so hard to come by? Uh, And what Jesus tells us in John 15 uh, is that what we can do, even when there isn't uh, happiness in our lives, is to cultivate joy. He tells us here in John 15 how we can get joy that endures, joy that can ground us and support us and sustain us in happy times and through sorrows. And he tells us that there are two ways that the enduring joy he offers can be cultivated, through pruning and by abiding in him. We'll look at each of those things in turn and then we're going to conclude by asking how it is that that enduring joy that Jesus offers can be made complete in us. Let's begin by thinking about how we get enduring joy. Uh, Jesus sums up for us what he has to teach us about joy in that final verse of the passage that we read earlier in 15 verse 11. He says, I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus says, "Do do you want joy in your life? Do you want something that goes deeper than your circumstances, something that can ground you in happy times and in sorrow? Do you want joy? Then here's what you need. He says you need my joy. You need to get that joy in you and that if you have my joy in you, then your joy will be complete. Uh, Jesus teases this out for us using that image of the vine. I'm the vine and my father is the vine grower, he says. I'm the vine and you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit. Uh, The idea is this kind of beautiful organic one about our relationship to Jesus, uh, that just as the branch of a vine draws the energy that it needs for producing fruit from the vine it's attached to, so we produce fruit in our own lives as we draw on Jesus as the source of our life. Uh, Fruit, uh, Jesus says, comes from having a vital connection with him. And the fruit that comes from that vital connection to Jesus, the fruit that is produced in us is joy, Uh, is a deep satisfaction that endures whatever your circumstances might be. Uh, There's uh, one really important thing that this image tells us already about joy and what it is and how to get it. It's important to notice, first of all, that joy is a fruit before it's a feeling. Uh, We're taking, uh, as a guide, Paul's list of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 through this series, the characteristic traits of people who have the spirit of the true and living God at work in them. Uh, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
Uh, Joy is one of those marks of the fruit that grows in the life of someone who's connected to Jesus. And here in John 15, Jesus uses uh, that same kind of idea to speak about joy. He speaks about joy as a fruit. Uh, And if joy is a fruit, if it's something that grows, then it's something that can be cultivated. Uh, Joy isn't first and foremost a feeling. It's not as fleeting as happiness. Uh, Instead, it's something that you can cultivate, that you can work on, that can grow deeper and deeper in your life. And that's just really vitally important for us, actually, in the kind of world that we've described. Our happiness, our feelings often ebb and flow with our circumstances. But here Jesus says joy is a fruit, not a feeling. And so if you have Jesus' joy in you, making your joy complete, then your circumstances can't steal that from you. You'll have a satisfaction instead that isn't dependent on them, but rather a joy that endures through the ups and downs that life throws at you. Uh, We all need something to ground us and sustain us uh, through the ups and downs of life. We need fruit that endures whatever feelings we're experiencing. Uh, And that joy is such a fruit is important for all of us, but uh, perhaps especially I think it's worth saying for people with experiences of of, uh, mental health issues of various kinds. Uh, Depression in particular is characterised by uh, an inability to experience pleasure. Uh, And for those of you who uh, suffer depression, you often don't feel happy at all. You don't feel uh, anything much uh, at all sometimes. You feel uh, sad or you just feel a little bit numb. And even when your circumstances might suggest that you should feel just as happy as the next person, you end up not feeling very happy at all. And so it's really worth saying that this kind of joy we're talking about here, this fruit, this fruit is for you as well. What Jesus says here about joy doesn't for a moment suggest that there's something spiritually wrong with someone suffering depression and other mental health challenges. It'd be dead wrong to take Jesus' words here or even Paul's command that we also read in Philippians 4 to rejoice always to mean that Christians who don't feel happy are weak or sinful. No, Jesus here is talking about something much deeper than that, something that he holds out to you even in the midst of your struggles, even in the midst of sadness and despair. And so mental illness is one of those circumstances that steals your happiness and yet a circumstance in which you can still have the kind of joy that Jesus is talking about here. Because joy is a fruit, not a feeling. It can be cultivated even through experiences of deep unhappiness. It's a fruit that comes through vital connection with Jesus, a connection that energises and sustains a fruit that will ground you in good times and help you to survive the bad ones as well. And it's a fruit that all of us need because life isn't as simple and as happy as we'd like it to be. So joy is a fruit before it's a feeling. Joy is something that grows in us, something that we can cultivate, something that we get from Jesus as his joy and he completes in us. But how do you do that? How do you cultivate that kind of joy? Well, Jesus says, as we've uh, said already, uh, that there are two ways that enduring joy is cultivated, through pruning and by abiding. Uh, Jesus uses that image of the vine to speak about uh, how fruit is produced in the lives of his people. Uh, And cultivating a vine, of course, uh, requires pruning. Uh, I'm not a gardener by any stretch of the imagination. I know nothing about family. I, uh, about family. That's not right. I was about to say, I was about to say, I'm married to someone who did uh, agriculture as a, a subject in Year 12, and so I was thinking family. And you know, anyway, we got off track a little bit. I don't know anything about farming, is what I was trying to say. Uh, Alison does, though. That's great. Um, she did some agriculture subjects in high school, so she obviously knows everything. She's a bit of an expert. Um, But even more than that, I'm not a gardener, uh, I don't know anything about farming, uh, but I do quite like wine. Uh, And so I've read a little bit about uh, viticulture over time, about how wine grapes are grown, how you cultivate uh, uh, the grapes that produce that delicious 
delicious nectar uh, from the vine. Uh, I'm no expert, but here's uh, something that I've read uh, from the experts about cultivating those kinds of vines. Uh, You see, a vine left to itself gets uh, tangled and grows in on itself. Uh, A vine left to its own devices will uh, literally stop itself from growing fruitfully because its own leaves get in the way of its light. Uh, The shoots and grapes uh, don't get enough light to grow well because they're too heavily shaded. Uh, Vines like that often will kind of go into overdrive and produce a lot of low quality fruit instead of a smaller amount of high quality fruit. And so in order to bear good quality fruit, vines need help to grow in the right directions and patterns. Uh, The reason you prune a grapevine or any vine is to stop it wasting energy and being unproductive. Uh, You cut out the parts of the plant that are growing inwards and getting tangled up and instead encourage the shoots that are growing outwards toward the light. Uh, You prune the vine, in other words, to help it uh, become what it was always supposed to be, to help it bear the fruit that it's supposed to bear. And Jesus says here, in the same way, to maintain a healthy and vital connection to him, a connection that brings joy, you need pruning. Uh, Pruning, I imagine, uh, doesn't really phase uh, grapevines at all. I suspect you don't hear grapevines talking to each other about how much it hurts to get pruned. But when you kind of put it in the context of thinking about you and your life and your own heart and circumstances, uh, it becomes clear pretty quickly that pruning sounds like a pretty painful process. Uh, And that's true. The Bible makes it very clear that God often uses difficult, disorienting, painful circumstances to produce growth in us. Uh, Even the Apostle Paul spoke of his own thorn in the flesh, some kind of circumstance that he asked God to take away several times and God refused to do so. Nonetheless, God used it to grow him. Uh, You know the Old Testament story of Job who came to know the glory and power of God through some of the most devastating circumstances you can imagine. Many of you know this firsthand as well. You've known times when the experience of uh, failing to reach a goal that you'd set for yourself, uh, of a relationship falling apart, uh, of an expectation that remains unfulfilled has served in the end, eventually, even if not immediately, to deepen your satisfaction in Jesus, to grow more joy in you. You know that painful circumstances in God's grace and kindness have brought about growth in your own life. Uh, And often such experiences, I think, provoke growth in us uh, by bringing a kind of clarity. Uh, You learn through them what it is that you actually really want, what it is that really does bring joy and satisfaction. Uh, And as you find your desires refined through the pain that you experience, as God works in you through it, you find that your joy is actually deepened as those clearer and sharper desires uh, that your pain is revealed are met more pointedly and directly by the grace of God. Like Job, you might not know why God has allowed such an experience into your life. Like the Apostle Paul, you might pray that the thorn in your flesh will be removed. But you know, nevertheless, that he's used it to pare back the overgrown desires of your heart, to let more light in. And in God's kindness, of course, even experiences like the ones we've mentioned of depression and anxiety and and mental health struggles can function in this same way. And some of you who I know even in this room tonight have told me how such experience has have uh, helped you to see more clearly the beauty of God's grace, how you've gone back to the basics of who Jesus is and found real joy there as your faith has been simplified and clarified through the experiences that God has brought you through. God, in his kindness, uses painful experiences to prune you so that you might grow more fruit in your life, so that your joy might be deepened. 
Uh, C.S. Lewis tells a story that illustrates this dynamic really beautifully, I think. Uh, C.S. Lewis always has a story for pretty much everything, but this is one of my favourites. Uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, in his novel, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, from the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, tells us uh, about a boy named Eustace. Uh, Eustace is a, a spiteful, spoiled, lazy, arrogant jerk of a kid, pretty much. Uh, naturally, of course, uh, as uh, you know, this is how the story goes, he uh, ends up on a sailing ship in the oceans of a magical land, as you do. Uh, and during the adventure, the crew that he's with comes across uh, a hoard of treasure, uh, and Eustace's greed gets the better of him. Uh, he stuffs his pockets full of jewels. He falls asleep among the dragon's hoard of treasure. Uh, and when he wakes up, he discovers that he's been transformed into a dragon himself. Uh, that's what happens if you uh, let the loves of your hearts, we talk about this all the time, right? And this is a picture of it here from C.S. Lewis. The loves of your hearts, if they're not aligned rightly with God, you become that thing. You are what you love. Eustace has this greed for treasure and he becomes a dragon. Strangely, though, this experience changes Eustace for the better. He realises as a dragon that he wants to be back among the people that he'd treated so terribly, that actually they were really on for him, that he was keen to be a part of the adventure they were on. And so he puts his newfound dragon powers to work, helping them repair their ship. He tears down a tree to build a new mast for the ship that's, uh, that's uh, stranded on the island there, all kinds of stuff. But he remains through it a dragon. He remains in this new kind of grotesque form that he's been transformed into. Uh, until, of course, he meets Aslan the lion, the Jesus figure in the Narnia Chronicles. Uh, Aslan tells him that he needs to be washed. Aslan says to him, you need to get undressed and get into the water here so that you can be made clean again. And so he has to take his dragon skin off. But as Eustace tries to peel off his own skin, he discovers more and more layers of scales underneath. And he despairs that he might actually never be clean again. And so Aslan steps in. Uh, here's how Eustace describes the encounter. Uh, the lion said, but I don't know if it spoke, uh, you will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I'd ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only then it hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. You see what happens here to Eustace? Eustace gets pruned. Aslan prunes Eustace. And in that process, as his dragon skin is finally removed, he becomes himself again. He becomes what it is that he was supposed to be in the first place. He returns to his true self, if you like. 
And as he does so, he becomes a more fruitful person. As the story goes on, he seeks forgiveness from those who he's wronged. He looks for ways to serve them. He grows deeper in humility. Uh, It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, Eustace thought he'd changed his own skin three times, but it turns out he he couldn't do it himself. Uh, He needed Aslan to get his claws right down deep into his heart and change him. And when Aslan did that, it was more painful, but it was also far more effective. You see, what Lewis' story illustrates so well is that we need help in order to change, that we need help if we're going to cultivate God's fruit in our lives, if we're going to cultivate this joy that Jesus talks about. We can't change in our own strength. Uh, Jesus himself says in verse 5 of our passage, apart from me, you can do nothing. If you want to bear fruit, you need a vine grower to prune you. And so what Jesus is telling us here is that if you want to cultivate joy, If you want to cultivate a joy that endures whatever your circumstances are, then you need to be open to the way in which God might use even painful experiences to do that. You need to be open to God's pruning work in your hearts, using your circumstances to clarify for you where it is that true joy and satisfaction lies. Letting God reorder your desires so that more and more you want what he wants. You love what he loves. You pray for the kinds of things that he would have you pray for. So that changing circumstances won't anymore destroy your joy, but instead deepen it. Uh, Opening yourself up to God in that way, of course, can be quite a difficult thing. Uh, You'll experience things that you'd rather not experience. You'll learn things about your own heart that might be pretty ugly. Uh, Hearts, after all, are pretty messy things. Our lives are often pretty messy things. Uh, But Jesus gives us good reason to be open to God doing this kind of work in us. Uh, He he says in verse 2, Every branch that bears fruit... My father prunes to make it bear more fruit. And you have already been cleansed by the word that I've spoken to you. There's a little play on words going on there in the original language. The word for cleanse and the word for pruned are very closely related to each other. They sound almost exactly the same and they've got the same kind of idea behind them. Uh, Jesus is saying, uh, God's going to prune you to bear more fruit, but actually I've already pruned you by, by having your word, my word, in you. Jesus is saying your heart and your life might be a real mess. There might be real change that needs to happen, real things that you need to go through and experience, even the the depths of darkness, to get at the joy that God has given you. Your life and your heart might be a real mess, but I've already made you clean. The pruning that you continue to experience is because God wants more fruit for you, because he wants you to have more joy in your life. And in the midst of painful circumstances, he draws close to you to grow you through it. And that connection between joy and pruning reveals something to us about what joy really is. Uh, Joy, the enduring joy that goes beyond happiness or otherwise in our circumstances. Uh, That joy, in the end, is the personal experience of grace. Uh, That's uh, true even in the words that Jesus uses here. Uh, The word for joy and the word that we uh, have for grace in the New Testament are, again, related words, very similar words. Joy is to experience grace personally, to experience the way that God uses even the dark things in your life for his glory and purposes and for your joy. Uh, One writer puts it all together like this, I think, very helpfully. Uh, He writes this, Though it always hurts... We must be ready for the Father's pruning knife. God is glorified, and so will we be, by bearing good quality fruit and lots of it. For that to happen, there'll be extra growth that needs cutting away. But that too is an intimate process. 
because the vine grower is never closer to the vine, taking more thought over its long-term health and productivity than when he has the knife in his hand. You see, those experiences of pain and darkness, those are the times when God draws closest to you and he uses those to cultivate an enduring joy in you that comes from that vital connection to Jesus. Of course, one way to respond to God's pruning work would be actually just to run the other way, to take, uh, if you like, the Jonah approach. God's got some work he wants to do in your life, and so you just go, no, I'm not having any of that. I'm going to run the other direction. And so it makes perfect sense that Jesus wants to make so clear that the flip side of cultivating joy through pruning is by uh, cultivating joy in abiding. Uh, Jesus is very clear that uh, alongside allowing God to do his pruning work in your life, uh, you also need to abide in him. Uh, Now, abide is an old-fashioned word uh, that simply means to remain, to stay put, to endure. Uh, Jesus is saying that as God prunes you, you need to stick with him in that, to keep uh, drawing on him for your life and energy. Uh, Jesus' command to abide in him is an invitation to work with God as he seeks to make you more and more like Jesus. Uh, And it comes with a promise, a promise that as you stick with Jesus, Jesus will also stick with you. Uh, Verse 4, Jesus says, Abide in me as I abide in you. Uh, You abide in him and at the same time he abides in you. The sticking with Jesus means that Jesus also sticks with you. Uh, And all of this uh, sticking with Jesus is closely related to his word. He says in in verse 7, If you abide in me, my words abide in you and you'll bear much fruit. That's the same word that Jesus says in verse 3 has already cleansed you, the word by which God has already begun his pruning work in your heart. If you're going to stick with Jesus as his Father cultivates more joyful fruit in your life, then you need Jesus' word in you. Uh, And it's really, I mean, it's kind of pretty obvious really what that means for your life, that you need Jesus' word in you in that way. Uh, What it means really is that your personal devotional life actually matters, that it's an engine for growing and cultivating this kind of joy. Uh, Here at St. John's and across uh, Christchurch Inner West, we refer to uh, a rich personal devotional life as what we call a means of grace. And we do so precisely for the reason that Jesus gives here. Uh, If you want to grow more and more as a fully devoted child of God, then one of the things you need is to be vitally connected to Jesus as you meet him in his word. Uh, And so a solid, regular diet of Bible reading and prayer is what you need to give shape and coherence, actually, to that work of pruning that God is doing in your life. To be able to see what it is that God is doing in your life, you need to be hearing from Jesus in his word. And you'll learn to stick with Jesus as you get more and more into your heart who he is and what God has done for you in him by reflecting again and again and again on what he says to you in his word. But of course, you don't do that in isolation. Jesus says, I'm the vine and you are the branches and the you there is a plural one. It's, you know, if we were less... um, King's English, Queen's English kind of people would say, use other branches. Uh, The fact is that uh, Jesus is not a one-branch vine. The Father is far too good a vine grower to have a vine that just has kind of one branch sticking off it. No, no, there's heaps of branches. You're all branches. So there's at least this many branches in Jesus' vine, as there are people in this room right here. Each of us is a branch, and we're connected to that same vine. And so abiding in Jesus is also going to involve two of those other things that we call means of grace. It's going to involve uh, your uh, fellowship and your corporate worship uh, because we're in this together. 
As Paul writes in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Another use moment. Let the word of Christ dwell rich, richly in yous. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and with gratitude in your hearts sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs to God. Getting Jesus' word into you, cultivating joy together is something that we don't just do on our own but actually do with others too. And so as you meet together in your fellowship groups during the week and speak the good news of Jesus into one another's lives, as you continue in your DNA groups that we've started to be able to open your hearts up to God's pruning work with others, to confess to one another, to speak the gospel again to one another, as you do those things together, you'll have Jesus' words abide in you, both personally and among us communally, as we seek to walk with Jesus together. You need Jesus' word in you to abide in him. You need to do that on your own. You need to do that with others as well. We all face painful circumstances. You might even be experiencing some pretty painful circumstances right now. Your life might be in a pretty unhappy state. Uh, and today what Jesus says to you and to each of us is that you can cultivate an enduring joy, a deep satisfaction that goes beyond those circumstances to ground you, to give you what you need to survive and even to grow. You can cultivate that joy even in the midst of your unhappiness by letting God do his pruning work in your heart and by enduring with Jesus, by sticking with him through thick and thin. Uh, and Jesus promises that he'll be with you through it. And he promises that in the end, your joy will endure. Uh, here's what he says uh, to his disciples and to us in the next chapter. Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will have pain, but your pain will turn into joy. When a woman is in labour, she has pain because her hour has come. But when a child is born, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy of having brought a human being into the world. So you have pain now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. This is the kind of joy that Jesus promises to you, the joy that you can cultivate even when you're in unhappy circumstances, a joy that will endure, a joy that your circumstances can never steal from you, a joy that's grounded in Jesus as you abide in him and let God work in your hearts. And so we've seen uh, joy is a, a fruit, not a feeling. Uh, joy that endures, experiences of grace, and brings satisfaction that goes beyond your circumstances. Uh, it's the fruit of a vital connection to Jesus. Uh, that kind of joy is the kind of joy that Jesus had. Oh, oh, sorry, getting distracted by my brand new slide clicker. So, you know, summary at this moment. Uh, the kind of joy uh, that Jesus had is the kind of joy that he says that you can have. Uh, he says, I've said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And so our, our final question is, how is it that that joy can be complete? How is it that our joy can be fulfilled? Uh, to know that, you've got to note what Jesus says about the joy that he wants you to have in you. Uh, he says, firstly, it's my joy. It's Jesus' own joy that he wants you to have in you. And his joy was to do the will of his Father, to complete the mission on which he was sent, to draw close to God even in the darkest of circumstances. Jesus' deepest joy was knowing his Father intimately and sticking with him even to the very end. Now, how is joy, how is Jesus' joy made complete in you? Jesus completes it by enduring with his Father even to the cross. You see, Jesus' Father, your Father, wants to prune you to help you bear fruit. Uh, but did you notice what Jesus said about branches that don't bear fruit? 
Have a look at verse 2. My father removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. You see, we get pruned so that we might grow more and more, but Jesus was removed. Jesus was cut off completely. Jesus experienced more than mere mere pruning. At the cross, his father cut him off and removed him and let him die. At the cross, Jesus endured the devastating results that all our desperate grasping after happiness deserve. And he endured it so that you could be grafted into the vine, so that you can draw life from his death, so that you can find a joy that endures in the blood that he gave. Jesus was cut off so that you might abide. He was removed so that you could remain. And his joy was made complete in giving himself fully to his Father, in entrusting himself to his Father, even in the midst of the cross. And so if we want to cultivate joy, if we want enduring joy in our lives that isn't a slave to our circumstances, we look to him, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy set before him endured the cross. And that joy that he experienced in intimate, loving relation with the Father, that joy is held out now before us as well. He endured the cross so that we might have his joy in us. And so we abide with him, we stick with him through thick and thin, we open our hearts up to the pruning work of our Father because Jesus has stuck with us. And so tonight as you come to the Lord's table... Let your heart be filled with joy as you remember and celebrate and give thanks for Jesus' body and blood given for you. Jesus said earlier in John that those who eat my flesh and drink my blood will abide in me and I in them. And so tonight as you take his body and blood, as you take the bread and wine into you, draw real life and real joy from him. Draw real power from your connection with him as you feed on him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving and with a deep, satisfied and lasting joy that nothing and no one can take from you. Let's pray that God will do that work in us tonight. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he gives us a model of what joy looks like in any circumstance. Now we thank you that you're working in our hearts to prune us, to pare back our twisted and disordered desires so that we might find a deep and abiding, enduring joy in you, even in the darkest of circumstances.